evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Welcome to this second lecture in the Medical Detectives Lecture Series. And thank you especially for coming tonight on Bonfire Night. I expect you're off to bonfires later, but it's very nice to see you here anyway. Um, I'm Dorothy Crawford, Assistant Principal for Public Understanding of Medicine. And before I go any further, I must tell you that this lecture is being recorded and therefore please check that your mobile phone is off for the duration. This lecture series was obviously inspired by, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a medical student at this university from 1876 to 1881, and very probably actually sat in this lecture theatre, uh, which was just completed um, at the time he was at the university. Um, his famous detective, uh, Sherlock Holmes, was modelled on the teachers of the day, uh, particularly Dr. James Bell, who was famed for his astute powers of observation and deduction. So it's my pleasure this evening to introduce our Sherlock Holmes character, um, Professor Jonathan Seckel. Uh, Jonathan trained in medicine at University College in London. Uh, he tells me he qualified 99 years before um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle here in Edinburgh. He then did a PhD at Imperial College in London, working on how the brain controls hormone responses to stress. Jonathan moved to Edinburgh in 1987, uh, funded by a Wellcome Trust Senior Clinical Research Fellowship. Uh, worked on this curious thing called Cushing's disease, which I think we're going to hear more about tonight. Uh, Jonathan was awarded the Chair of Endocrinology in 1996 and then the Chair of um, the Moncrief Arnott Chair of Molecular Medicine in 1997. He's a Fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, of the Academy of Medical Sciences uh, and of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. So I would like to invite our distinguished speaker to give his talk on the case of the Cushing's case, A Tale Linked to Obesity. Jonathan. Well, thank you very much, Dorothy, for that kind introduction, and good evening, my lords, ladies, and gentlemen. Can you hear me clearly at the back? This is a very daunting venue. It's, it's a bit like being in a cockpit. I'm down here below you, deeply intimidated, and of course, if you don't like me, you can just lob things at me. Um, but I hope you won't. I hope you won't. I can keep, I can keep you amused and, and entertained. I'm going to talk about um, a paradox, an enigma that has puzzled medical scientists for quite a while and has become a very common problem with a modern epidemic. So let me take you through it with a few quotes from Sherlock Holmes along the way, because I very much like Sherlock Holmes. <coughs> and I hope you do too. My theme for today is translational medicine. It's a bit of a cliche, and it means different things to different people. Some people think it's simply taking a paper written in French and turning it into Serbo-Croat, but to me, it means going from the patient who comes in with an unusual disease, understanding the fundamental basis of that, in the laboratory, exploring the science, and then taking that back as an understanding to develop treatments, not just for perhaps a rare disease, but more generally across the piece. 
It's, um, it's an ambition. And very rarely it works out. And I'm going to show you an example in, in, in our own practice where at least in part it has worked out. But for most of the time it's rather a tough ask. Nonetheless, this is what the government wants us to do. It also gives me an opportunity to show this lovely picture from the uh, film Lost in Translation by Bill Murray, uh, which, of course, I don't know if any of you have seen it, uh, reflects the spectacular jet lag that you get if you have to travel all the way to Japan, um, and also rep represents how difficult translation is in medicine. But this is the paradox I want to show you. The first chap here and this is a chap's tummy, for those of you who, who don't recognise it. The first, the first chap you could see ten of on any Edinburgh bus, and he has simple, common obesity. And he's particularly fat around the tummy, and his tummy measurement there he's showing you is 55 inches, which isn't desperately healthy. The second chap is exceptionally rare, and you could go on an awful lot of buses for most of your lifetime, and you'd never see that. We collect this disease, this is Cushing's, and we find three new cases among the two million people population that we serve every year, three cases a year. And they're both fat around the middle, and it's that that I'm going to talk about. But I thought perhaps we'd, we'd start with some much more gentle introduction so as not to get carried away. So I thought I'd show you a pretty picture of Edinburgh, and it's a typical picture of Edinburgh, as you can see. The sun is shining, as it almost always does. And there's no problems with motor traffic. You can't see a single moving motor vehicle on this still picture. There's not a tram work in sight, because that's just a figment of my imagination. It's a lovely place. Isn't this a fine city? It's a great place to visit. It's a great place to live, as is most of Scotland. But we're a bit of a black spot here in Scotland because we have the highest incidence of cardiovascular and metabolic disease of any developed country on the planet. That's the main cause of death of all of us, heart disease. It used to be those nice people in Finland, but somehow or other they did something in Finland and got rid of heart disease, but we have it in spades. And this is what I'm talking about. Uh, oh, another metaphor today is going to be about food. And this is a picture of porridge. Well, actually, it's a picture of a human coronary artery. And this bit is relatively normal. You can see the blue thin wall here. But this area here is filled with porridge. Well, actually, it's filled with atheroma, which is derived from the Greek word for gruel or porridge. Um, because medical descriptions in pathology very often are based around analogies with food. And if you fill up your coronary artery with porridge, as I'm afraid almost all of us do, it narrows the artery, and then eventually it ruptures, and then you form a clot. This is where the rupture was. And you form a clot, and the coronary artery occludes. You have a heart attack, and if you're unfortunate, you die. And all of us have this gruel material in our coronary arteries. Now, of course, you'll immediately ask me why, and the answer is, uh, in part, the Scottish contribution to international cuisine. I give you here the fatty haggis. For those of you who like hunting and fishing, the haggis is in season. And the pièce de résistance, the deep-fried Mars bar. <laughs> Has anybody ever tried one of these? There's not a Glaswegian in the house. <laughs> Whatever, because of our diet, there are an awful lot of us who look a little bit like these 
happy creatures. We were just a little bit overweight. And it's a common problem. It's not just us, to be honest. It's everyone. These are publicly available statistics from the United States of America, which is a small country somewhere to the west of us. And these are the data for obesity. This is not overweight. This is genuine obesity. Body mass index above 30. So that's substantially overweight. And as you can see, in 1985, when I was certainly practicing medicine just before I came here, and most of you, of course, weren't born, but 85 is, you know, a respectable few years ago, 24 years ago. In 1985, the states mostly didn't report their statistics for obesity because it wasn't a problem. And those that did showed most of the states had less than 10% of their population in that very attractive light blue were obese. So let's move forward a few years as they begin to collect the statistics and the epidemic begins to build. So here we are now, 1990. First of all, most of the states are collecting data. And secondly, you can see that most of them have become a slightly darker blue. In other words, something between 10 and 15% of the adult population of these states are obese. Well, that's 1990. We've still got another 19 years to go, so let's just move forward a little bit. And let's go forward another few years, and let's go to 1995. Now you can see, first of all, everyone's collecting data. And secondly, half the states have now got more than 15% obesity. They're in the 15 to 19% range, so it's getting commoner. Remember that 10 years earlier, nobody had more than 10% obesity. Now they're mostly 15 to 20%. Let's go on a little bit. You impressed with the colours? Here's the year 2000. Now, some of you are old enough to remember the year 2000. You remember the millennium bug and all those other things that happened and rooms at hotels, which were so expensive, most of us couldn't even dream of affording them with the view of the castle. Nine years ago, half the states now are reporting more than 20% obesity. It's an incredible rate of increase. Let's go on a little bit, shall we? Here we are five years ago, 2004. A third of the states are reporting more than 25% obesity, and nobody's got less than 10%, nobody's got less than 15%. The lowest rates are 15 to 19%. So it's filling in rapidly as this epidemic takes off of genuine obesity. And the most recent data available, and don't say you weren't the first ones to hear it, because they've only just gone up, are last year's data. And you can see several things from this. The first thing is that now some of the states are reporting more than 30% obesity. Almost all of them have more than 25%. Those, apart from whatever they do in Colorado, it's all right with them because they're doing well. That's always the lowest incidence. Everyone has more than 20%, and nearly everybody is up above 25 to 30%. So the first thing is that that patchiness that was there is now filling in. The obesity rates are becoming consistent. The second thing about this is if you look at the real data as opposed to these summary figures, you find that nobody's going much above 30%, as though there is a, a limit. And indeed, that hit the news in the Britain only recently when we heard this week that rates of obesity that have been projected to be so high amongst our children are now levelling off. And this is what these data also show us, that about a third of us are prone to obesity and the rest of us aren't, which is good news. And the probable cause of that limitation is our genes. Some of you, those of you who are old enough to pay tax will have paid a lot of tax to the Human Genome Project, 
And the one thing that taught us is that we now know all the genes, or many of the genes for obesity, and they all have small effects, and they're all genes for appetite. They're things that make you eat. So it's not the patient's or the subject's fault who's overweight, that they're overweight. It's because they're driven to eat. But there's a bit more to it than that. The cause, the main cause of this epidemic of obesity cannot be new genes, because we haven't had time to breed them in. The main cause are free and probably totally unnecessary calories. I went out this morning and bought these two bars. You know why I bought two bars? Because I was desperately worried that my genes would cause me to eat one of them. <laughs> the good news is I was that busy today that I didn't have a chance. Anybody hungry, by the way? Because I'm only going to go home and eat them, you know. Somebody take one off my hand. There we go. Well done, Dorothy. Anybody else? There we go. And there's an opportunity for you in the Scottish cricket team. Just thought you'd like to know what you're about to eat. 280 calories, of which 12 grams is fat, and if you have it deep fried, that's 400 calories. 400 calories, and that's 25 grams of fat. A Mars a day, if you ate an extra Mars bar a day over your lifespan, would be 7 million extra calories. How does that feel? And 300 kilograms of fat. Want to know what that looks like? That, in a pair of hands, is half a kilogram of fat. So 50 kilograms is 100 times that, 300 kilograms. You can work it out. It's an awful lot of fat. Fat's a boring tissue. doesn't do anything. Not true. We now know from studying its biology that it's desperately interesting. It makes all sorts of biologically active molecules. It makes things that make you feel full, like leptin down there in the red, which signals to the brain, hey, there's enough fat you don't need to eat anymore. Actually, what it signals is, hey, there's enough fat for reproduction you don't need to eat anymore, but that's probably a bit too complicated for this early reproduction. It's a bit early to talk about that at this time of the day. It has things which determine blood clotting, and so you can imagine that it has a role in heart attacks. It has things that determine how insulin works. It has things that determine inflammation, blood pressure. It's a very busy organ indeed, and if you put on lots of it, you're changing your biology. If I had a pound for every patient who came into the clinic and said, I'm fat because of my glands, I would be a very wealthy professor indeed. It's nearly never due to hormones, except in rare cases. And I'll just show you one here, which is very dramatic, and then get on to the meat and potatoes of what I want to talk about. And this is a young lad who lacks the hormone from fat, which goes to the brain and says you're full, called leptin. And you can see he's three years old over here. He weighs 40 kilograms. He has insatiable appetite. He steals food. He'll break locks. He'll do anything. He's so driven to eat. And when my colleagues in Cambridge gave him, at great expense, leptin, he slimmed all the way down to a perfectly normal six-year-old and has remained as his sister, who has the same disease, perfectly normal. But unfortunately, there are only... 12 people with this disease on the planet. So leptin isn't going to cure it, because most of us who are a bit overweight are leptin-resistant. 
If only that was all the story, it would be easy. We just eat less. But there's another bit of it. Because where the fat is also matters. If you are like me, a little podgy round the middle in the apple distribution, your fat is on your tongue and on your shoulders and on your chest, that is bad for your heart. If your fat in the pear distribution is on your hips, thighs, outer arms, it's perfectly benign. In fact, it's probably advantageous, protects you from heart disease. So where that fat is matters, and it's understanding how we get the difference between apples and pears that our real story begins. So let me give you a bit more evidence before we theorise too much. This is a story about the adrenal glands, and the adrenal glands, just above the kidneys here, lie there and produce hormones. The central bit, the medulla, produces adrenaline, that's fight and flight, but I'm going to talk to you about the outer part, the cortex, which produces two hormones. It produces aldosterone in this attractive green, which works straight back on the kidneys, causing them to retain salt and put your blood pressure up. So you need that if you've got no salt in your diet, if you're losing salt after walking on a hot day and sweating a lot, losing it because you've got problems with diarrhea, and it keeps your blood pressure normal, stops you losing blood pressure. The other hormone is cortisol. And cortisol, which looks almost identical to aldosterone, is quite distinct, and as I'll show you on the next slide, is all about stress and fuel metabolism. Because this is what glucocorticoids like cortisol are for. When we were hunter-gatherers wandering around on the African savannah, we had some primeval challenges as the naked ape, like this creature. Of course, if you have my job, the threat is much less likely to be a rampaging lion and much more likely to be the dean. Either way, when you're faced with these appetizing creatures, you have to make an escape. So you have adrenaline that makes you freeze or fly, and you have cortisol, the glucocorticoid, which comes out in a great burst, but gives you extra fuel, a few Mars bars, by putting up your blood glucose and fat, so that it goes to the brain and the muscle so you can run away. And your blood pressure goes up a little bit, which makes you feel able to get away. You're not going to die of a simple scratch. And you feel good about yourself, because when you're being pursued by these creatures, it's not time to worry about where the money is going to come from to pay the mortgage. You just need to get out of there. And they turn off everything that you don't need. So inflammation, wound healing, pain, all those things are not very useful. Otherwise, the pain and the wound healing is the wound that's being nibbled by the lion or the dean. Digestion, do it later. Growth, do it tomorrow. Reproduction, it's probably not the time. <laughs> With the possible exception of medical students, who in my experience think of very little else. But apart from that, when you're being pursued by these creatures, you don't normally think of mating. And it does very interesting things to the brain. It's not the thesis of today, but it does very interesting things because it switches the brain to concentrate on escape and forget detailed learning and memory. So the bit of the brain that's to do with learning and memory shrinks, and the bit of the brain that's to do with fear and how to escape is activated. Crude learning. When you lot get angry with me, I need to know the exits are there, and not how many of you there are and what you're wearing. So it's very, very adaptive. But it goes horribly wrong if it goes on for too long. 
And this is Cushing's syndrome or Cushing's disease. Cushing was an American neurosurgeon about 80, 90 years ago. He was extraordinarily clever. He was very cold as a person. But he invented and dis operations and discovered diseases which remain still with us today. So he was very acute. And he first described this condition due to very small benign tumours, either in the pituitary gland, which controls the adrenal glands, or in the adrenal glands themselves, in which cortisol, the glucocorticoid, is overproduced. And it's difficult to diagnose, and it takes a couple of years, as in this lady patient of ours. And in her, that short-term rise of blood pressure has turned into hypertension, and she's on four drugs and we can't control her blood pressure. And that short-term rise of glucose has turned into diabetes and she's having three injections of insulin a day and we're having huge trouble in controlling her blood glucose. And that rise of fats has turned into bad cholesterol, which is all over her. But curiously, she's fat round the middle, which is what cortisol does to you. It makes the fat round the middle grow. And she's infertile and changes in her memory and all sorts of other things that come with it. A very, very rare disease indeed, but it shows the power of cortisol. And it also shows how if you can remove, with an operation designed by Cushing 90 years ago, you can remove that benign tumour, you can completely reverse it, because this is the same patient six months after that benign tumour was removed. We've stopped all the drugs for her blood pressure, and her blood pressure is normal. We've stopped the insulin, she no longer has diabetes, and you can see that that fat tummy has melted away. And so here's the paradox. That's Cushing's, very rare, high cortisol in the blood, causing all of those problems that we see so commonly on the Edinburgh Omnibus. Well, perhaps not with this slightly unusual hobby. People who are fat around the middle and have high blood pressure, high glu glucose levels, diabetes, bad cholesterol and heart disease. So Cushing's, which is rare, and this disease, metabolic syndrome, simple obesity, which is common, look identical. And everybody said there must be a, a link. And yet, in metabolic disease, in obesity, blood cortisol levels are normal or even a bit low. Well, Holmes had it. Circumstantial evidence is a very tricky thing. It may seem to point very straight to one thing, but if you shift your own point of view a little, you find it pointing in an equally uncompromising manner to something entirely different. So everybody thought that metabolic syndrome, obesity, there had to be high cortisol levels, and we went on measuring them and measuring them and measuring them, and they were always slightly low, until patients developed illness, when, of course, they were stressed and ill. But when they were just overweight and didn't have the complications of that, cortisol levels were low. And the solution, indirectly, walked into our outpatient clinic 30 years ago. This is the translational medicine bit. This gentleman walked in with a very, very rare disease indeed. He had very high blood pressure, which looked as it was though it was due to too much of that hormone aldosterone that increases the salt. So his blood salt level was high and it's exchanged for potassium, so his potassium level was low except that the level of aldosterone in him was unmeasurably low, and all its precursors and metabolites and everything on its pathway were unmeasurably low. So he had the syndrome of apparent mineralocorticoid, because that's what aldosterone is, excess. 
He looked like he had too much aldosterone, but we couldn't measure it. It was none of it in him. And his cortisol level, incidentally, was normal. He was the only adult patient with this rare syndrome. A few children had had it, and they'd all died in childhood of untreatable high blood pressure. About 40 in the world. And they were known to have an abnormality of an obscure enzyme of interest only to steroid anoraks like me called 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase. And all that does is it interconverts cortisol, which is active, and cortisone, which is inert. And for those of you who are chemists, it's the ketone, the oxygen group here, which makes it inactive. And if it's got a hydrogen and an oxygen, it's active. And that's all it does, that enzyme. So how could that explain his illness? What we were able to show was that in this patient, it was cortisol that was acting to retain the sodium. We suppressed his cortisol with a drug, and his disease went away. And we gave him back cortisol while his own cortisol was suppressed, and his blood pressure came back up again, and his sodium came up, and his potassium, which was the exchange in the kidney, went away. So there was a remarkable illustration in experimental medicine of how cortisol could be acting completely illegally in retaining sodium. At that time, a group of Americans had discovered the aldosterone or mineralocorticoid receptor in the kidney, which is the only place it is. And they found, to their surprise, that it bound cortisol and aldosterone with equal ability. And yet we all knew that in most people, except our single patient, cortisol didn't have this effect of retaining salt. And what we hypothesized was that cortisol, which is called compound F, was being eaten by the enzyme 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase and inert cortisone spat out in the normal person so that only aldosterone could go onto the receptors, which was a neat idea. And in our patient, we thought that maybe this enzyme was broken and cortisol was able to get onto those receptors. So how to prove it? To prove it, you've got to go to the sweet shop. Anybody like these? Well, don't eat too many of them because they put your blood pressure up. Because that's a very powerful inhibitor of 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase. And if you eat enough of them, about a box a day, it inhibits that enzyme. So this is what I've been telling you. This is the binding in the kidney, in real life, where it is yellow and white, there's binding, of aldosterone to the kidney to retain salt and water. And this is the binding of cortisol. And as you can see, it doesn't bind. But if you take a lot of licorice in advance, you inhibit that enzyme, cortisol flows onto that receptor and binds to it. It shouldn't be. It's doing so illegally and causes salt and water retention. And that is what we think is happening in our patient. Normally, cortisol is broken down by 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase to cortisone, which can't bind to receptors, and it's spat out of the kidney. When that enzyme is deficient because of a gene defect in our patient, cortisone 
can go straight round, bypassing the enzyme, it binds to the receptor and it causes salt and water in retention and high blood pressure. And licorice, by inhibiting the enzyme, does the same thing. So that enzyme looks as though it's rather important. So what is that enzyme? Well, at that time, an enzyme had been purified and it's gene-isolated by my friend Carl Monder in New York. And a student of mine, a student here, Susan Lowe, had looked very hard at that, and she had provided the evidence that Carl Monder's enzyme was not the one that was responsible for this exquisite piece of biology in the kidney. Because she showed that if you gave estrogen which turns that gene off in the liver, the activity disappears in the liver, it turns the gene off in the kidney, but the activity of the enzyme goes up. So there had to be a second enzyme. We were looking for something new. And we and a whole host of other groups ran around like headless chickens trying to find the new enzyme, and we purified it, and somebody else found the gene, and somebody else did, and we found it. And it was a second gene. This was a race about 10 years ago. And it was that gene that had all these funny mutations that I've put up in mutation notation up there, including in our unique adult patient. So there we were. We'd found the gene for a disease. The patient walked in. We'd sorted it out. We'd proven the whole thing. Of course, being Edinburgh, we had the old wet Wednesday afternoon. And so to prove anything, you have to make a mouse. And we made a mouse that lacked our enzyme. And essentially, the mouse did exactly the same as our patient did. There was an advantage in having the mouse because we were able to understand from the mouse why the children died. And the children die because the mice died, and the mice died because they have developmental abnormalities in their kidney, because that enzyme does something in development of the kidney as well as what I've shown you about salt and water. So it gave us some clues to understand. It's too rare a disease to say we've gone out and cured the world of anything, but at least we've understood some biology. That's experimental medicine. But it left a hanging problem. What did the original gene, the original enzyme that Carl Monder and his friend Perrin White had found in New York, what did it do? And we all assumed that it was just a weak form of the same thing, inactivating cortisol in liver and fat, which is where it's found. Fat's the clue. And we all had all the wrong ideas until a couple of students of mine, the same Susan and Pauline, thought a little bit laterally and really exemplified this classical quote from Holmes. Here's Pauline's data. She took that liver cells grown in a dish and looked at the enzyme and found that it did not inactivate cortisol to inert cortisone, but completely unexpectedly took dead cortisone and turned it into active cortisol. It was going the other way. It was making cortisol, not destroying it. This was the reverse of what we had assumed. It was reverse of, of the dogma of the field. It was making cortisol, which brings me to today's thesis of the pain of obesity. When we looked at fat rats and mice, we found that that enzyme was turned off in their livers. Well, you'd expect it. I've shown you what Cushing's disease looks like. And if you're fat, the last thing you need is to be making active glucocorticoid cortisol in your tissues, because it'll just make it all worse. You'll get Cushing's on top of obesity. But the paradox was that we found that enzyme was up 
in the fat tissue and only in the fat tissue. It wasn't just these rather sweet, fat rodents. It was also fatter humans. These are Swedes. Swedes, not the vegetable, but Swedes from Sweden, for those of you who aren't listening carefully. And this is looking at the enzyme, and the most overweight people are in the blue, and they have less of my enzyme making cortisol in their livers and three times as much in their adipose tissue. It wasn't just Swedish men, it was Swedish women. It wasn't just Swedes, it was Finns, it was French, it was Brits, it was Scots. Eventually it was Americans, even the Americans believe this. This has been done now 20 times and in each population we find more of this enzyme making cortisol only in the fat tissue in people who are overweight. We didn't just do it in one way because you never believe something until you've done it with different methods. In this experiment we have put a little fine needle inside the abdominal fat tissue just under the skin. It hurts about as much as a blood test. And we've infused a little bit of cortisone, the inert substance, and it comes into equilibrium with the fat, and we're looking at the output of cortisol. And in obese people, there is three times more active cortisol made in their adipose tissue than in lean people. How? We don't know exactly why that enzyme is up in obesity, but Dr. Atkins who otherwise wasn't desperately helpful to humanity, has been quite useful to us because of the popularity of his high-fat diet. And so uh, Roland Stimson in our group took people on either a normal low-fat, third of calories as fat in their diet. It's not a very low fat, is it? There's plenty of fat in the diet. And also took people who had two-thirds of their calories because they liked Dr. Atkins' diet and showed that in the people who went on to the high-fat diet, my enzyme went up in their fat tissue. So maybe eating fats increases that enzyme. But we don't know why people who are overweight have two to three times more of that enzyme in their fat. But it allowed us a hypothesis, which was that if you had more of that enzyme, you would have, if you like, Cushing's disease of the adipose or fat tissue. It wouldn't be everywhere. It would just be Cushing's in your fat tissue. Would that be enough to give you metabolic disease? I'm always reminded of what Huxley said, that's Darwin's friend and biographer. Darwin was a medical student here, you know that. But he was too, um, it was too many years ago for him to have been taught here. I have to say, depressingly, we put him off medicine, but probably to the good of humanity. Huxley said, the tra great tragedy of science, the slaying of a beautiful hypothesis by an ugly fact. So I've given you my beautiful hypothesis. Let's see some ugly facts. To do this, we linked with a group in Harvard and made a mouse which genetically is driven to have more of my enzyme only in its fat tissue. And it's in red compared with the control mice, ordinary mice, in yellow. And in blue here, I'm showing you some animals which lack leptin, just like the fat child I showed you, and who are driven to eat, and also show about two and a half, three times more of my enzyme in the fat tissue and nowhere else. So it's just like you see in people who are overweight. These mice have been driven to have more of the enzyme. And what that does is it doubles the level of cortisol in their fat and makes no difference to their blood. Blood levels of cortisol are normal. It's only up in the fat. And the consequence of that is that they become a little tubby. And these mice are tubby, and they're only tubby around the middle. They're not really tubby elsewhere. 
So now we're getting to the apples and pears because we've created an apple. Just by making extra cortisol in the fat tissue, you've generated an apple. And it's not just an apple in terms of its shape. So we've turned, if you like, fat going out in the periphery into fat going round the middle. This is an apple in terms of its disease. Because if you give it glucose to eat, this mouse has very high glucose levels and is diabetic, whereas the ordinary mouse does not. It puts the glucose away. And it has high levels of bad fatty acids and cholesterol. And it has high levels of insulin. And its blood pressure, this is measured continuously, is much higher than a normal mouse. And it even eats more just from having extra cortisol made in its fat tissue. That is the metabolic syndrome. That's what happens with obesity. So that's pretty good for the hypothesis. The ugly facts support our idea. Let's turn it on its head. This is the translational kick. Can we now go from this understanding to actually doing something useful for humanity? Or are we just a clever lot of clever clogs sitting there with these great ideas but not able to make anybody any better? So what happens if we get rid of that enzyme? Could we turn metabolic syndrome back into metabolic health just by inhibiting that enzyme? Well, to do that, we remove the, the enzyme from a mouse. The mouse is otherwise perfectly healthy. It looks fit. It looks good. It reproduces with enthusiasm, as mice sometimes do. Doesn't matter. It'll come back in a second. These these mice are super mice. They look fantastic. Their blood pressures are normal and they live a perfectly healthy, normal lifespan. So there you are. You have a mouse. You have an enzyme which you think causes metabolic disease that makes cortisol in the fat tissue. And now we've gone to the trouble of getting rid of that enzyme. What does it do? And the answer is it makes a mouse that resists metabolic disease. The mouse that has none of the enzyme is here in green, and you can see its glucose levels are lower than its control, normal mouse, and when we give it glucose to eat, instead of having an excursion of glucose, it's much tighter. There's much less rise of glucose in the blood. And if you give it a high-fat diet, this mouse does not. It resists diabetes. Its blood triglycerides and cholesterol are lower, and when it eventually gains weight on a high-fat diet, it gains less weight, but eats more. So we call these mice that you can have your cake and eat it, mouse, because they can eat 10% more and they gain 15% less weight. Well, that sounds pretty good. So essentially, we've made a mouse that resists weight gain. And the best news is, when they do put on weight, they put it on around the mouse equivalent of the hips and in the legs and they resist putting it down around the tummy, which the normal mouse does. So essentially, we've turned the apples back into a normal, healthy pear, which is fantastic news. If only I was trying to treat mice. And if you let these mice go onto a high-cholesterol cafeteria diet, a normal mouse, and this red, is that atherosclerosis, that porridge I showed you right at the beginning. This is atherosclerosis in a mouse's aorta. And if you don't have that enzyme, you get about half as much atheroma, so you've halved it. 
But I don't look after mice, I look after men and women. So let's try and see whether any of this translates into something of the slightest use to any of us, because otherwise it's just mice. Of interest to my pussycats at home, but not to the rest of us. So let's go back to a little bit of botany. This is Glyceriza glabra, from which we get these sweet roots from which we form licorice. And I told you that licorice inhibits these enzymes, and it inhibits both of them. It's only that type 1 enzyme that makes cortisol in your fat and in your liver that exists in the fat and the liver. And if you give licorice to otherwise healthy men, you improve the liver's sensitivity to insulin. That's actually quite good. That's about a 7-8% change, which isn't bad. The best drug that we have to improve the sensitivity of insulin of the liver does about twice as much of that. So it's already doing something. And if you have diabetes, it improves the sensitivity of the liver to insulin by about 15-20%, which is about as good as you can get. So that would be quite a useful thing to do. It does nothing to the fat because licorice doesn't get into fat properly. We don't know why, but it doesn't. So that was as far as we could take it in the university. But fortunately, those nice people in the drug companies took up our ideas and ran around trying to find a better drug than licorice, which was just as well, because licorice isn't great. And these are the first data, and they come to you, everything you get here is up to the minute. There's nothing here that Conan Doyle would have heard in this lecture theatre. These data were shown at a meeting, but have not yet been published, only this autumn. And this is the first drug company to go public with what they've been able to do with an inhibitor of my enzyme. And they've got an inhibitor, and they've treated patients already medicated with diabetes, and then they've added the inhibitor, and they've treated their patients for another three months. And what they're showing is that the inhibitor is lowering glucose levels in the blood, just like we found with the mouse that lacked the enzyme, and it's lowering cholesterol levels, and it's lowering blood pressure, well, I'm not showing you that, and it's lowering body weight. We don't know whether it's off the tummy yet because the change in weight is still much too small. So there you are. That's gone all the way back to humans. That's translational medicine for you. I've shown you that we have an epidemic of obesity here. And we have a clue of at least a part of it from a rare, unique patient who walks into the clinic, who my colleagues investigated in fine detail and worked out there was a funny little obscure enzyme that kept the active steroid cortisol from illegally binding to receptors for aldosterone. And if you lack that enzyme, cortisol bound, and you got high blood pressure. And we were able to understand a very rare disease. It's led us into other things as well, but that's not today's thesis. But that there was another enzyme, which everyone had thought was the one that was protecting in the kidney, but wasn't that paradoxically went the other way and made cortisol. It was an amplifier, and it's in fat, and it's in liver. And in the fat, it goes up in overweight, and it causes that fatness around the middle, and it causes the consequences of it. And if you can inhibit it in a mouse, and now, as a company has shown in a human, you can produce a substantial new treatment for the commonest disease of our population. 
from one patient walking in with the wrong enzyme and the wrong problem. So the answer to the paradox, at least at the moment, of why you can see 10 people on a bus with fatness around the middle, which looks like Cushing's disease, but they have low or normal levels of cortisol, is that the cortisol is being made in their fat and isn't anywhere else. And it's a subtlety, but it offers an opportunity for treatment. And if these ideas make it forward, then maybe we'll have a new treatment for what is the commonest disease of our population. It's easy for me to stand here and give you talks about exciting bits of medical science and little bits of detective work and how we've found something new and exciting. But actually, I'm just the, 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 the increasingly balding and greying old professor. I remember being in here giving my inaugural lecture an increasing number of years ago, when at least I was more hirsute. But science is a team game. And it's done by a lot of people. And I've had the privilege over 20 years in Edinburgh of working with a very, very talented group of people, some of whom are named here who've been involved in this project, both the postdoctoral scientists and the PhD students and my senior colleagues who've worked very closely with us and a large number of technicians who've supported this. This is a team game. This is 20 years of work. And of course, it's not a game that we only played here, although this particular story we led out of Edinburgh, but has involved the international nature of science, collaborators across the globe, who certainly make it a fun thing to do, because you have friends in every port, like a, like a decent sailor, but also you have skills from across the world in order to tell a tale like this, which is amusing and entertaining, and, and this particular one's successful but it's taken a lot of hard work and sweat by a lot of people, and I'm very grateful to all of them. Even The Economist has recognised, and God knows The Economist recognises very little. I mean, you know, they didn't recognise the banking crisis until after it had happened. I mean, it, what can I say? Even The Economist recognises that we have a problem with our, our obesity. Maybe Edinburgh has contributed a potential solution. Maybe his home should have the last world. The world is word. The world is full of obvious things which nobody by any chance ever observes. Well, maybe we managed to observe one. And I hope you enjoyed our little detective story I've told you. Thank you very much. This production is copyright. 